0: I, too, would like to greet you tonight in the precious name of Jesus. Maybe echo a few thoughts that Brother Claire shared about prayer meeting. I draw strength and courage from the prayer meeting time, and thank you, brethren, for being there and sisters. And yes, Brother Claire, I just invite more of you to come, because I think it's important, because I think that's where the power is, and come and bring your children. And you know what? If that room gets full, we'll fix that problem. We'll expand somewhere else. Well, Brother Claire already commended you for being here on a Thursday night. I hadn't really thought about it, that Thursday night might be a dry night. Uh, maybe a little less people than normal, but that's okay. Some of your faces I'm getting used to see every night. Lord bless you for that. And some new friends here this evening welcome you all to the service. I'll talk a little bit about I'll hang on to your seat. Professional sports. The professional sports world basketball, football, baseball, hockey, soccer. That's not my topic tonight, all right? Just hold on. You'll understand after a bit. But in the professional sports world, There's two aspects to a sports team. There's the defensive side of the team and there's the offensive side of the team. And defense is very important because the defensive side of the team attempts to prevent the other team from scoring. And I've heard it said that it takes defense to win championships, I don't know about that. However, I'm smart enough to know that you cannot win if you don't have offense. At some point, you have got to score a run or a goal or a basket or something. So you have to have some offense to win. I'll just give one example in football, professional football. They divide their team members up. I don't know how many there are. forget. But they divide them up into a defensive unit or an offensive unit, and either you play on one unit or the other. There's very few players that would cross over and play both offense and defense. And so you're playing one or the other. And if your defensive unit is on the field for most of the game, you're in big trouble because that means your offensive unit is not out there and you're not going to score, right? I think we understand that. Now, the difference between sports and the church could be said like this. One of the differences. Sports is about what man can do. Church is about what God can do. And now that I've said that about sports, and I realize that sports can be a sticky subject, and I have no idea what how sports is viewed here in Virginia. I have no idea. It doesn't make any difference, but I'll just tell you how I feel about it, right? Uh, I would say this tonight, that you cannot be a real Christian and be consumed by sports. And I hope you agree with that. And I say that from a... Personal perspective, because I am ashamed to say tonight that I used to be consumed by sports, but praise God, I've been delivered from that. I'd also say tonight that sports has the potential to ruin your appetite for the things of God. You want to ruin your appetite for God? You want to ruin your appetite for a good supper that mama made? Just eat a Snickers bar before, right? It'll ruin your appetite. You want to ruin your appetite for the things of God, just consume yourself in sports. It'll do it. And I would also say that sports has a current record of taking the passion of God's people to the wrong place. So now you know how I feel about that. That's not my subject tonight. Again, tonight I'm going to just put the title of the message on the board just to help you stay focused. I'll let you read it first. Uh, especially when you have kind of an odd title, sometimes it helps people to stay focused on what we're talking about tonight. I'm we'll talking about a subject that is dear to my heart tonight, and that is the church. And I don't know if this is a good title or not, but I like to think about it as church Flame." And I invite you tonight to open your Bibles to the Book of Matthew, chapter 16. Three text verses here, two verses, Matthew sixteen, eighteen and nineteen. Jesus speaking, and he said, And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, Jesus, 2,000 years ago, he made a profound (laughs) statement that changed the course of God's people. It was a change in church. And it was a change from the law and the high priests and sacrifice to a Holy Spirit filled men and women that were following Jesus and they were building the church of God, his bride. And you know, friends, tonight, that course is still in effect today, 2,000 years later. And it will be in effect until the trumpet sounds. The church will be continuing to be built until the trumpet sounds. And so that statement is still as real today as it was 2,000 years ago. When Jesus said, I will build my church. Friends, that is a divine statement. That is a statement of truth that you can count on and you can bank on it. There is going to be, there is a church. And what a privilege, what a blessing to be a part of that. It's a promise, friends, tonight. It's a promise as sure as you have got warm blood flowing through your veins tonight, you can count on it that what Jesus said is true. It's a statement that is A great invitation to all people. When Jesus said that, it was an invitation. It is an inclusive statement. It doesn't matter who you are. Friends, tonight we can join up and we can join Jesus in building the church. And you know what? It's also a statement that requires a response from us. And I suppose you can try to ignore it, and you can't ignore it, but tonight I'm going to keep putting it in front of us, because that statement requires you and me to respond to it. And when Jesus said he's going to build a church, what kind of church do you think Jesus had in mind? So just uh, as long as there's a sign out by the road and there's some brick and mortar or wood and a roof and a sign that says there's church, is that what Jesus had in mind? Any old church will do? Or what about a laid back, complacent? Lukewarm church, you think Jesus would be all right with that? No, I see Jay shaking his head no, because Jesus said, I'll spew that out of my mouth. That's not the kind of church you want. How about a, a worldly church, a compromising church? No, we know that that's not the kind of church Jesus is talking about that he's going to build. Uh, that doesn't work. So, when Jesus said, I'm going to build my church, do you think he had the conservative Mennonites in mind? That's like, okay, these are the people. These are the ones that are going to build my church. Huh? Well friends tonight I I don't tell you something. The reason I'm a conservative Mennonite because I appreciate it and I let's see, how should I say it? I believe it is the safest way for me to get to heaven. That's that's why I'm there. I can appreciate it. I believe it's biblical. I think we make good application. So is that what Jesus had in mind? Or did he? was he thinking about the Dunkard Brethren or the Amish Men- Beaches or the, the Old Order Mennonites or the Baptists or the Pentecostals? What was he talking about? Well, friends, tonight, I know you all know this. But the truth of the matter is there's not going to be any denominations in heaven. There's not going to be any Baptist Boulevard or a Mennonite Main Street or Amish Alley. You know, there isn't going to be anything like that. The true church of Jesus Christ is made up of real Christians. They're living for God. And Jesus said, I will build my church. And I believe, according to scripture, that that church has both offense and it has defense in it. I believe that. And it's a defense that's rock solid, that it is steadfast, it is strong. It's a shield of faith, it is dead serious about standing on truth. It's about dead serious about pursuing a safe path to heaven, about walking the straight and narrow way. It's dead serious about not altering that course. It is defensive, it is dead serious that it has an enemy and it knows that and it's going to defend against that enemy. I'm all in for defense. The Bible has much to say about it. However, it takes offense to win, to experience victory. And we could, I'm not going to go there, but Ephesians 6, it talks about putting on the whole armor of God. And some some of that armor is defense and some is offense. We need to have both. Well, tonight, I want to use this phrase, church aflame. And I don't know if that means anything to you or not. So I, I chose the word of flame. In Webster's, it means in flames, glowing. The idea of offense there's something there, conquering, gaining ground. You know, the, the opposite of that. If you want to know what the opposite of that would be something that is just smoldering. You know, every once in a while, a little bit of heat coming out. Every once in a while, a little bit of smoke you can see, but not much there. That's not what I'm talking about tonight when I talk about a church that is aflame, it's on the offense. And I know I'm going to be a little one-sided tonight. And I'm not saying there's too much defense in our church. I'm not saying that at all tonight. Please don't get me wrong. There are two ditches, friends. You can have a church that goes in the ditch of all defense. You can have a church that goes in the ditch of all offense. We've got to be somewhere in the middle with both. But one of the things that I think about is this. That can happen to a church if you focus on off on defense, if a church focuses on defense, you can get into a survival mode. You know, we defend and we defend, and, and we survive these things that come along. Um, we, we made it through the charismatic movement. Now we go way back, alright? We survived that. We go back. And we made it through the divorce and remarriage onslaught. And we made it through the uh, prosperity means godliness movement. You know, we survived that. And we made it through the first phase of uh, technology. We're surviving that. And we made it through COVID-19, and we're, we're surviving that. So we survive. And we get into survival mode. The defense is working. That is good. But my friends tonight... The church is designed to do more than just to survive. Way more. When Jesus said, I will build my church, he wasn't thinking about some church that just barely makes it. Friends, tonight, that's not what Jesus meant. You know, I am planning to go to heaven, friends, and I don't plan to sneak around to the back door of heaven and hope there's some crack open that I can slip in. I plan to march through the pearly gates. With the church of Jesus Christ. So Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now a gate, I'm not a farm boy, okay, but I know what a gate is. I know a gate is used to keep something in or keep something out. And... So in this case, as Jesus used that word here, the gates of hell, it's meant as something that would keep people from moving forward. It's a gate that would keep the church from marching to Zion. The word prevail, gates of hell shall not prevail against it, it means to not overpower it, it won't be a deterrent, or hold out against it. And so Jesus said, the gates of hell, they will not hold back. They will not detour. They will not be more powerful than the church that is marching to Zion. And I like that picture tonight, friends. It's a beautiful word picture. And Val Yoder said it this way in a book he wrote about the church, and I like this and I quote it. He said, I envision a church that damages the gates of hell. I like that, friends. We want our church to be a church that is going towards glory. And the devil throws up gates and our church marches right through those gates on our way through. It cannot detour us. It will not stop us. A church that is on the offense. Jesus also said then in verse 19. He said, that's how my church is going to be. It's going to go through the gates. That hell throws up. It'll keep on going. It'll get there. Then he said, I give unto thee the keys. And I know a lot of preachers have probably interpreted this verse a lot of different ways. And maybe none of us are really 100% sure what that all means. And I would understand it to mean it talks about things being loosed in heaven and bound in heaven and bound in earth and loosed in earth. And I think it refers maybe the first Uh, interpretation meaning is maybe it is that the church has authority on earth. I think that's part at least of what it means. But as I read it and I understand it, I believe that Jesus is also saying to us, like, I give you the keys. It's like if I reached in my pocket and gave you the keys to my car and say, here, take my car. And I would mean that you take that car and you drive it to where it needs to go. And I believe that Jesus is calling us and he's saying, Here are the keys to the church. I want to give you the responsibility. I want you to be a builder of the church. And he's not just saying that to Peter and the other apostles there, he's saying that to us today. I give you the keys. It's a work order, it's a responsibility, it's offense for all of us, for you and for I. I recognize, friends, that the church always goes through difficult times. I shouldn't say always. At least it cycles through difficult times. And I realize that there's going to be difficult times ahead for the church. And I think we have three choices. One is we can hunker down in defense and just defend. Defend against this and defend against that. And survive the things that come our way. Make more rules. Or we can go on offense like we have the model church in Acts. Or we can do both. And I think that's exactly what Jesus had in mind when he gave us the keys. That we would be both offense and defense. Tonight, I want to focus in on church aflame. I want to focus in on offense. And what would that look like today? What should that look like today for our church to be aflame? And I'd like to give some practical points. The first one is this. And you turn your Bibles to the book of Acts because I'm going to be using a quite a few verses out of Acts and just a verse here and there. But what should a church aflame look like today? Acts chapter 1. I believe that it's a Church that is full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. And we find that over and over in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But ye shall receive power. After that the Holy Ghost has come upon you and shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Holy Ghost power. Jesus said to the church, to the beginning of the church, you're going to receive Power. Holy Spirit, dynamic power. You're not going to be able to do it on your own. You don't want to do it on your own. You want the power of God in your life. And you might say, well, that sounds good. But is it real? Is it for today? Or is that just for some very gifted church leaders? Or is that for some premier missionaries? It sounds good, but is it for common people? Well, if you read on down, he was talking to, well, let's go to verse 13. And when they were come in, same group of people, they went up into an upper room where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealots, and Judas the brother of James, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary and the mother Jesus and with his brethren. Common people like you and me. He said you're going to be filled with the Holy Ghost. You receive power from the Holy Ghost is what he said. And then we go over to chapter 2. And the day of Pentecost was fully come. They were with all in one accord in one place. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind It filled all the house where they're sitting, appeared unto them the cloven tongues. And verse four, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. My friends tonight, this is one of the keys of having a church that is aflame, that is on the offense and that to be on fire. Friends tonight, there is no glowing without the Holy Spirit. You can make a lot of noise. And you can have a lot of action, and you can have all kinds of programs in the church and all kinds of things going on, but if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't have anything. That's the power. We can see some more examples if you turn me to chapter 4, verse 29. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness we may speak the word. They were threatened. You guys, quit it. Enough of this, Jesus. We don't want to hear about him. You guys, just lay off. And they prayed for boldness, verse thirty-one. And when they prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. Friends, tonight, I I know that you know we can't demand that everything that we read in the Bible happens to us exactly. But I believe tonight, I truly believe in my heart that we short come, we short out the power of God because of our lack of allowing Him to fill us like He would like to fill us. I don't know if that makes any sense. I believe that there is Holy Spirit power. I would love to be in a building in a place where we're praying in the place which shake because of the power of God. Let's not underestimate the power of God in our lives. We're filled with the Holy Ghost. What's the result of all that? Verse 32, in the multitude of them that we believe. That's offense, friends. That's what it takes. Be filled with the Holy Ghost. Allow God to control our lives by His Spirit within us. And then the offense comes. A man by the name of J.D. Greer, and I quote him. I don't know who he was, but I quote him. He said, the early church had no buildings. They had no money. They had no political influence. And I would add to it, they had very few committees and programs. And yet, they turned the world upside down. Talking about turning the world upside down. Was said in Acts chapter 17. You don't need to turn to this one. I'll just refer to it. In Acts 17, and I, I won't even read to it, it read the verses prior. But and in, in Paul and Silas were there, and they preached Jesus Christ crucified, risen, living God, Savior. They preached this, and it says about this. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying these that have turned the world upside down or come hither also. They turned the world upside down. They were filled with the Holy Ghost and actually they didn't turn it upside down, they turned it right side up. And there was offense, for, says, And says, and some of them believed and a and great multitude believed and women not few. And so there was offense. The church was aflame. So what did they have that the church doesn't have today? What did they have that we need more of? And I'm not being critical of this church tonight. I'm talking more in broad terms. Why, I'm concerned about our own churches, dear people. But in a more broad term, let me ask this question. The church in America, is the church in America turning America upside down like Paul and Silas did? And I would have to say no, the church in America is very political, and it's quiet, and it's distracted, and it's complacent, and it's very individualistic, and it's influenced by culture, the church in America. Now let me bring it a little closer home. And again, I don't mean to be critical tonight. The Amish and the Mennonites, us, you know what we're known for? We are known for great cooking. And we have great cooks. We have experienced that this week. Amish and Mennonite cooking. It's known all over the United States of America. Great. And you go to places. I know when you go to Holmes County, Ohio, you go to Der Dutchman and you're going to stand in line to get there. People flock to it. It's great cooking. We are known for that. We are known for our furniture building abilities. And it's good that we make good stuff, good work ethics. That's great. But we're known for making furniture. We are known for the beautiful quilts that we quilt. We are known for our... Amish chicken, Traverse City, Michigan. We can buy Amish chicken and Amish turkeys. We're known for that. I've seen things like Amish bottled water. Uh, we're known for our, our beautiful homes. We're known for our business savvy, and we can make things work, and we can make money. We're known for the things. And I'm not saying that to be negative tonight. But the question that I ask tonight, is that a sign of being full of faith and the Holy Ghost. Are we turning the world upside down? Right side up. My friends tonight, I challenge us. We can get really good. We can get so good at doing church. And not, be, not being full of the Holy Ghost. We've got to be careful. My second point, what does Church of Flame look like today? Back in Acts chapter 4. My point is this been with Jesus, Acts 4, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made known, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which is set at naught of your builders, which is become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Now there, what I didn't read prior to this was they had healed, I think they had healed the the lame man prior to this. I believe that's what that is. And the church was aflame. It was glowing. There was offense. 5,000 people had, men had just come into the church. 5,000 new members, if you want to say it that way. I'm not afraid to say it that way. And they came to Peter and John and they said, Who do you guys think you are? What is going on here? I mean, what do you think you're doing? We don't want you to do what you're doing anymore. We don't want to hear about Jesus. You know, just cut it out. No more. And besides, who do you guys really think you are? Who do you think you are? You are just smelly, simple fishermen. That's all you are. That's all you know how to do is go out on a boat... And try to catch a few fish. They thought they were ignorant and unlearned men. But, friends, tonight they had been with Jesus. That's what made the church aflame. They had been with Jesus. And we could spend time tonight looking at the life of Peter pre-ascension, post-ascension. What a difference in that man. You know, he was, he had been, I love Peter. I can relate to him so well. And someday in heaven, I want to talk to Peter. But, you know, he could stick his foot in his mouth and he could say the wrong things and he could do the wrong things. But his heart was right. And he wanted to learn from Jesus And he did learn from Jesus, and he got to the place after the ascension, and I don't have time tonight to read the scripture, but he was standing up. It says, Peter stood up, and he said, look, man, we got to have an ordination. This church has got to go forward. I think that's in Acts chapter 2. He stood up, and he preached the gospel message, and he stayed standing, and he told them, you know, there's only one way. You must repent. Peter standing and preaching repentance and baptism. What a difference from the man that, Jesus called Satan one time. The difference was he had been with Jesus. He gave his heart to Jesus. His heart was, the church was aflame. And friends, today, the church will not be aflame with just more knowledge and just more programs, and I'm not saying programs are wrong, or more information, and more education, or fancier buildings, and add a Starbucks or something. That's not what makes the church aflame. But a church becomes aflame when men and women have been with Jesus, and they're immersed in Jesus. There's no glitter, there's no glamour, but it's the power of changed lives. Point number three. What does the church of Flame look like today? In Acts chapter two, we have brotherhood and unity. In Acts chapter two, verse 44, at the end of the chapter, and all that believed were together and had all things common. Verse 45, they sold their possessions and goods, parted to all men as every man had need. Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. They had brotherhood, they had unity. They cared about each other. They worked together. They prayed together. We heard that about about that tonight in our prayer room. Uh, Acts chapter twelve, I think it is, where they were praying together as a church for Peter, and he was delivered from prison. There was brotherhood. There was power. There was unity. It was wonderful. It's so important, dear people. Now, I don't know what you think about brotherhood and unity tonight, and I trust you're all in on that. And I want to encourage you. But I think about verses like I'm going to read a verse out of Ephesians chapter five, verse twenty-one. I think about verses like this: "Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God." That is brotherhood, dear people. When we submit ourselves to one another in the fear of God, and I, you know, I know people today they argue church membership and you can't go to the Bible, you know, find me in the verse in the Bible where it says church membership. It doesn't say that in the King James Version. I understand that. But friends, tonight, uh, why are you church membership? I'm just going to be blunt and frank with you tonight. If you're not a member of the church, you should become a member of the church. Why would you not want to be a member of the church? That's the question that should be asked. Why not? And the Bible says, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. My friends, tonight you cannot do that outside of congregation of believers. You can read the book of Acts. It's obviously written to a congregation of people. And whether they had a written membership or not, I don't know that. But again, I ask the question, why would you not want to be full-heartedly supportive of a congregation of the church? You know, part of biblical brotherhood is, friends, This that we are responsible for each other. You know, Brother Jay, you are responsible for your brother uh, Samuel beside you spiritually. We have a responsibility to each other that we don't go astray. And we need to, well, let me just put it this way. Let's say that there's something that you would really like to do, something, uh, whatever it is, something that you would like to do, and I would just really like to do this or have this. And I know that... um, there's probably some in the congregation that don't agree with that. But you know what? I can do this, and I can still get to heaven. So I'm going to do it. That's not brotherhood. What we should say is, you know, I really, like, I really would like to do that or have this, or whatever it is. But I know that some in the congregation will not appreciate it. And so because of that, I'm going to refrain because of the fact It might have on my brothers and sisters. And it may not be good for our church. Friends, that is brotherhood. And that's offense that will set the church aflame. My fourth point is this. What does church aflame look like? Intentional. I use that word intentional. Maybe it's overused. I don't know. But in Acts 15... We have Paul and Barnabas, and the Bible says they were men that hazarded, in verse 26, they hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. They hazarded their lives for the church. I'll tell you what tonight, friends, church aflame is a result of men and women that are intentional. They have a desire, like we talked about last night, and they put forth an effort We must choose to intentionally follow Jesus. We must choose to intentionally build the church of Jesus Christ. Intentionally following Jesus is very practical in everyday life. And I'll just tell you, brothers and sisters, tonight you might like the idea of being part of a church that damages the gates of hell, and I do too, but it takes more than just showing up And and sitting on the pew Sunday morning and Sunday evening and Wednesday night. That's good. And maybe I'll say more about that later. But it takes more than that. It it takes men and women that are intentional about following Jesus every day. I'll tell you, friends, tonight, I don't think this is original with me, but it keeps sticking in my mind. You can't, someone said, you can't follow Jesus unless you follow Jesus. It's so easy to say you can do it. Yeah, you'll do it, but to really follow Jesus every day. You know, years ago, and I don't know how many years this would go back, but we had the WWJD. How many of you remember that? WWJD. Oh, yeah, Yeah, most of you do. What would Jesus do? And you know, uh, an old slogan, and it's an old question, and when it came out, it was kind of a fad because we had a lot of Mennonite, conservative Mennonite people that wanted to. WWJD. The problem that I felt with that thing was they were more interested in wearing the bracelet than actually doing it. Um, That's how I saw it. But the question is still relevant today. I still like the question. I appreciate the question. It's a relevant question. What would Jesus do? And I think that if we're going to have a church that is aflame and damaging the gates of hell, we got to do what Jesus would do. What would Jesus do if he were on earth today? Would he ride a donkey or would he drive a car? And you might say, well, you can't ask questions like that because Jesus isn't here and it's just not relevant to what Jesus is. No, I think we can ask those questions. I think we need to think about if it's so, okay, so he would drive a car. What kind of car would Jesus drive if he were here today? Isn't that a fair question? I think it is. If Jesus was here on earth today, would he wear the clothes that I wear? Would he have a house similar to mine? Would he shop at the same stores I shop at? Would he eat at the same restaurants I eat at? Would his Sunday activities be similar to my Sunday activities if Jesus was here today? How would our church change if Jesus was a member of our church for one year? Isn't that an interesting thought? And you know, probably the toughest question of all questions that we could maybe come up with if we go down that road if Jesus was here today, would he have a smartphone? And if we would have one, how would he use it? And again, you might say, I'm going to argue that because Jesus wouldn't need no phone. He doesn't need a phone to call anybody. Okay, I still think it's a relevant question. I'll I'll just tell you right up front, I don't have a smartphone. i got a dumb phone. My wife has a smartphone. Okay, so it's not like I'm smashing smartphones tonight. I'm not asking you to go home and take a sledgehammer to your smartphone. I mean, maybe you should, maybe you shouldn't. I don't know. So that's not what I'm trying to say tonight. That's not my point. Technology, when it comes to technology, the church has played a lot of defense, our churches. And I'll tell you the truth tonight. I have played a lot of defense when it comes to technology. I have cried across our pulpit at home. I have cried across pulpits pretty much wherever I go preaching that we have got to be on the defense with technology and especially with smartphones and all of it, whatever. In my mind, in my opinion, it is the toughest battle that we are fighting today. It is the most relevant issue that is facing the church today. It is threatening to destroy our churches by one member at a time. Dear friends, tonight, if you think I'm old fashioned, I am. But I can also tell you that I've talked to a lot of people and, and I have, as I look behind me, I see, a, I see a spiritual bloodbath of soldiers that have fallen, soldiers of the cross that have fallen because of whatever you want to call it, technology. Gary Miller wrote a book, Surviving the Tech Tsunami or something like that. I read it. How many of you have read that book? Yeah, a lot of you. Good book. I appreciate it a lot. But just the fact the title says surviving indicates that not probably not everybody is surviving, and that is the truth, my brothers and sisters, tonight. And I'm burdened with that. You know, I, I'm going to say just a few things tonight. Maybe I have more to say later on in the week. I don't think we understand how it has impacted us, how it changes us. I'm gonna give you just a very simple illustration. We were guests in a home, Karen and I. We were invited to somebody's home, not this state, not our state, uh, nobody you know. We were guests. This couple had also invited another couple as guests. And so we got to this place and we went in and sat down in the living room on the couch chairs, whatever it was, this other couple came and the man took off his suit coat, his plain suit coat, and he sat down on the couch and he was totally immersed on his phone. The host and I made several attempts to make a conversation with this man and we finally gave up because evidently whatever he was looking at on the screen was much more interesting than us. Is that what Jesus would do? Is that where we want to be? Is that how we want it to change us? I was in a conversation with a young Christian man that I appreciate and respect not too long ago. And he's on the cutting edge of technology and he knows what he's talking about. And I asked him this question. I said, young man, all the changes... In technology, the last 20 years have been a tremendous challenge for our churches. I said, Are we over the hump? Or what will the next 20 years bring? He said this He said, The changes in the next 20 years will be far greater than the last 20 years. My friends, tonight we need to be serious about it, we need to be intentional. The internet, whatever you want to call it, the smartphones, they are designed by ungodly men that have no interest in your spiritual well-being. We need to understand that, friends. And I'll tell you what, the pornography that has found its way into our own congregations is crippling us. How can we, people, how can we have men sitting on our pews that are involved in pornography and we think the church is going to be aflame? It won't happen. And not just pornography. Social media has has infested us like nothing I've seen. And we think that somehow that we can just indulge in all of that and we're going to be on fire for God. I question it. Is the Bible... Boring to you, unless it's on the screen. I just challenge you people. I told you I'm old-fashioned. I am. I believe that when we read our Bible, we should read it here out of the book. There are way too many distractions on the screen. I just challenge you. It's not a law. It's not a rule. It's Delmer's opinion. Okay? It's my conviction. But I want to challenge you tonight. I want to challenge you tonight on biblical principles of contentment. Why do we always have to be on the cutting edge? i challenge you on the biblical principles of uh, idolatry. Uh, Google God. We need to make sure, friends, that Google God is not the God in our life. There are too many preachers getting their messages from Google God instead of this book and the Holy Spirit. Friends, let's be a church of flame. Let's be on the offense when it comes to technology. And yes, we need to play defense. I believe in blockers and I believe in accountability and all those things are wonderful, they're good, and we need to stay on top of it, absolutely. They're great, they're necessary. But friends, tonight, offense is the key. And by that I mean the number one thing. The way to be offensive with technology is have hearts that are committed to holiness. That's what it takes. Hearts committed to holiness. A personal choice for holiness. That is the number one thing. That's how we be on the offense. May we be part of a church that truly damages the gates of hell. My friends, tonight, if we are involved in things with technology that is crippling us, my friends, we cannot damage the gates of hell. Jesus said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's going to be unstoppable. And he said, I give to you the keys. I give you the keys. And you know, friends, that demands a personal response. Are we saying yes? Are we saying no? No. Friends tonight, I hope the church is precious to you. I believe it is. You're here, that you're the Thursday night crowd. I trust it is. But I believe, friends, that the church of flame should be so important to us. I believe that every member should be at every service. Now, you may like to run me out of here. And I will leave after Sunday night. And I'll leave you to figure it out. But that's how I believe. I say this across our pulpit. I believe that every member should be at every service. If you're healthy, if you're at home, of course. And there are exceptions, I understand. We should plan to be at every service. Because it's important to us. And I ask the question, why are our Wednesday night services, our prayer meetings that are so important, why are they so poorly attended? Why? Why are we asking that question? Why aren't we asking each other that question? I'll tell you why. They are so poorly attended because there are other things that are more important. It's pretty easy to figure out. If half the body is missing on a regular basis, you've got a crippled church. You try going to work tomorrow morning with half your body, see how it goes, don't work too good. You cannot damage the gates of hell with half a body. Jesus said, I give you the responsibility. I give you the keys. The privilege to build my church here on earth. The question, my friends, is have you taken the keys? Have you said yes to Jesus? Have you opened your heart to church of Flame? Are you all in tonight for damaging the gates of hell? Are you on offense, following Jesus every day? Let's pray. Father come to you tonight. In the quietness of this hour, it's very quiet. And I don't know these people, only you do, and they know themselves. And I believe there are many people here tonight that are on offense.